You are listening to a broadcast of Dublin First Baptist Church, Pastor Cameron McGill in Dublin, North Carolina. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist Church and the Lake Church to hear from God's Word. Here's what we're going to do. Looking at the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, uh, you can go ahead and find your place there. I'm going to see who can find a phrase first. I'm going to give you just a little bit of information about this phrase as you find your way to the book of Revelation. Four-word phrase, okay, that only God could say. Four-word phrase, and it is found numerous times. Over and over again, you'll find it. Only God could say it. Mark gets it. Go. The first one gets a prize. That'd be six words. That's four words, but the wrong ones. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Here you go, brother. You get a free pen. You got one? Oh, okay. Okay. I know thy works. Now, how does that make you feel? Imagine being a teenager. Your mom and dad, no matter what you do, your mom and dad somehow know your works. They know where you've been, what you've done, all that kind of stuff. The fact of the matter is that God is truly omniscient. He is sovereign. And in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, we find the seven churches. The seven churches of Revelation, they represent the different dispensations, the different ages of the church. And each are a commentary penned by John the Revelator on the Isle of Patmos, but literally the Word of God to the church. So now we fast forward some 2,000 years. And we realize that even today, in the 21st century, God would say, I know thy works. Now, we can put on a, a good front. You know, um, a lot of times I'll ride by churches and I wonder, what is the state of that church? Sometimes you ride by a church and it's small and maybe the, uh, the, the yard doesn't look too neat and, so, and too prim and proper, you know. It's just uh, maybe kind of plain Jane, nothing really frilly and fancy. And you might ride down the road and you might see a big church with fancy stained glass windows and steeples and finely manicured yard. But that's not the church. You might ride by a church on Sunday morning. You might see the parking lot filled with beamers and benzes. You might go down the road you might see a little old church and in that parking lot there's just uh, some old rusted out pickup trucks, maybe a pinto wagon or something like that, you know. But that doesn't make up the church. It's not about that. The fact of the matter is that while we may have an idea about the condition or the health or the well-being of the church, ultimately it is a sovereign God who truly knows our works. If you've got your little uh, handout there, maybe you'd flip it over and give you a little bit of history, something I think is interesting. There are seven churches in the book of Revelation, and we don't have time tonight to get into each of them in depth, but I'll just give you a little bit about each of them. The first church is the church where at Ephesus. Ephesus, we've talked a lot about Ephesus. It's one of the churches that's more well-known 
because of the little phrase that said you've left your first love. You've forsaken your first love. They were doing everything right, but ultimately they had the wrong motivation. They had forgotten and forsaken their first love. So the first church is Ephesus. The second church we come to is Smyrna. The church at Smyrna would be the church that would go through persecution. Now remember, each of these represents a different age and a different dispensation. So all of these are church ages that have been behind us. And we're looking back. There's much evidence. There's much history. Christ uh, made it very clear. And if you go back and look at history, you say, Wow, he talked about these churches and exactly this is what would happen at each of these ages, each of these times. Thirdly, we come to the church at Pergamos. Pergamos Church was the church that needed to repent. It was the church that had drifted far from God and desperately needed to repent. The fourth church is Thyatira. Uh, The church at Thyatira was the church that had a false... What did I do wrong? Oh. I was wondering. The church at Thyatira had a false prophetess. But more importantly than the false prophetess was it was a church that succumbed to false prophets. A church that wasn't settled and grounded in the word and drifted away from solid doctrine. The next church is the church at Sardis. This is the church that has fallen asleep. That's sad, isn't it? Fallen asleep. You might say, yeah, preacher, every once in a while people fall asleep in this church. The next church, the church at Philadelphia, we might say the church of brotherly love. And this was the church that had patiently endured. They had uh, well suffered, but well endured. And then finally we come to the seventh church, and it's the church that's represented in today's uh, age, in today's dispensation. And it is the church at Laodicea, which is the church that wasn't hot, And it wasn't cold, it was lukewarm. This is the 20th and 21st century church, and I'm brokenhearted to tell you that, but I've got one little bit of interesting note as you make a list of that. That's it. That's the last church. Because this is the church that will be in operation, if you will, when the Lord returns. So there's hope But we need to realize that we have to be very careful not to become the lukewarm church. So I just thought that was interesting to give you a little bit of history about these seven churches. And then to ask ourselves the question, how can we be a church that does not grow lukewarm? I've used this illustration through the years, but it's been a while. What two ways can you call something that's hot? and boiling and on fire to just become lukewarm. Two ways. Number one, you can dump something cold into it. You can take a, a, a bucket of boiling water and you can go get you a cooler full of ice and dump in it and it'll go, and it instantly becomes lukewarm. This is the picture of a church that's on fire and dynamic and growing and people are getting saved and the Holy Spirit of God is blessing and at work and all of a sudden the enemy comes in and just literally snatches the rug right out of underneath the work of God. Uh, A blowed up business meeting. Uh, A pastor that goes off the deep end. 
And by the way, the enemy will attack most when the church is most on fire. And uh, I'll just tell you how it is. Sunday I went home and I just so, um, you know, on the mountaintop and knew that with all that the week had brought, it was a sweet week meeting and, and just working and ministering. And, but I knew that it, those weeks are few and far between, you know, and, and a new week comes. But you realize that when you're closest to the Lord is when the attacks will come and come the most uh, often. So the first way is by pouring something cold into it. I, I, I just, what comes to mind when I use that illustration, and I use it fairly often in revivals, is whenever you find somebody that just really gets on fire for the Lord, unfortunately, many times it is another so-called believer that will cause them, many times will try to quench their spirit. A young person maybe gets really fired up for the Lord and they're up sharing their testimony and they're excited about what God's done. Maybe at summer camp or some experience and somebody will come by them and say, well, I've seen this before. I'll give them two weeks and they'll be right back to where they were. You know, God's blessing a service and the Holy Spirit gets in it and, and, and the preacher's preaching and people are getting saved and the music's been a little sweeter than ever before and it's just been a little piece of, uh, of heaven on earth and, and, and the service goes a little bit long and the next thing you know at 2 o'clock the calls start coming in. We can't keep having church this long. You know. But there's another way for something to become lukewarm. Do you know how? Just let it sit. Just let it sit. Not continually stoking that fire and, and, and fueling that fire. That's why it's so important not just to see people saved, but to make disciples and why it's so important to continue striving and pushing and, and working and demanding excellence and never settling for mediocre, but always aiming for the top. How important it is that we protect the church in the 21st century, our church, from becoming lukewarm. Many churches today uh, we find, especially in bigger cities, a, a new church will start up and all of a sudden it seems like everybody wants to go there. And many times it's because the church that they've been in has kind of grown a little bit lukewarm and a, a new church can begin without the baggage and without uh, all of the uh, structure and the formality and, and man, they're just worshiping and having a wonderful time and be able to say, that's what I want to be a part of and they're attracted to that place where it seems like it's just on fire. Let me give you these few things very quickly tonight, and I won't keep you all night, but I do want you to get this. The biblical believer, as we've kind of got this a little bit now in our minds, number one, this might sound redundant, but the belief of the believer. Remember the church at Thyatira, they were uh, given to false prophets and, and, pro and false prophecies. So how important it is that we have a solid belief? What guides our church? Recently, a pastor friend of mine left his church and went to another uh, ministry position. And um, as he left, uh, he was meeting with the chairman of deacons. And he said, where do you see this church moving now that I'm leaving? And he said, well, I reckon we'll do whatever the next preacher leads us to do. Fact of the matter is we do not just need to be a, a pastor-led people because the pastor at best is temporary. But realizing that the Word of God needs to lead us. Thy Word have I hinted my heart. The Word of God will be a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. It needs to guide us. So we need to make sure that we know what the Bible says if it's going to be guiding us and leading us, right? 
I'm always amazed when I go for a tour. I used to take the seniors on a lot of tours. Maybe it's a museum or a plantation or, or downtown Charleston or New York City, whatever it might be. And you've got this person that is so well rehearsed and so well informed and, and knowledgeable about what they're talking about. And they're going along and they're saying, in this house in 1764, this happened. And on this battlefield, this took place. And on this, and man, they know their stuff. And as you're going along, you don't have the least bit of trouble trusting them and following them because you know they know their stuff, but so many times we as believers don't know our stuff. We need to have a solid belief in order, in, a, in order to be a biblical believer. The Bible says, of course, you know this, you hear it all the time, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. How important it is that we rightly divide the word of truth so that we're not carried off into false doctrines or false teachings or, or, or get carried away with ourselves and those kind of things. Many times believers today don't know enough about the Word of God uh, to be of any great help to them. And so they're making decisions based on emotions or based on feelings or, or based on what they're told without any true concrete evidence that I know what the Bible says. I've even had people tell me before, well, I know what the Bible says, but I believe. Well, that's like getting pulled over by the state trooper and saying, I know what the sign says, but I believe. Listen, it don't matter what you and I say we believe. Truth is truth, and it doesn't change. And there is something concrete about the doctrine that we believe in. So number one, the belief of the believer. It must be settled. People ask me sometimes, tell me about your church. Tell me about Dublin. Maybe they visited and want to know more about it. And I say, well, here's the biggest thing you need to know. We are a Bible-believing church. And some people, they don't even really understand what that means. People will come and visit our church and listen, I be believe me, believe me, I am nothing special. But people will say to me, wow, uh, I've never heard preaching like that before. And I'm thinking, really? You know, what have you been listening to? And, and, or, or they'll come to a funeral or something and say, I've never been to a funeral like that. Well, what do you mean? Well, I'm just used to going to a funeral where they get up and say, Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to pay honor and tribute to our dear beloved sister, insert name here. Listen, if we're not careful, uh, I believe we even sometimes um, take it for granted the fact that we are a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching uh, church. We worship the Lord Jesus Christ. We honor and we adhere to His holy word. Now, through the ages, there's been much debate. Do we, do we adhere to the inerrancy of Scripture? Or do we, or, or do we uh, err to the authority of Christ? And the fact of the matter is, there is no division or separation. It's not either or, A or B. It is both and. Jesus never said, you've got to choose between me and my word. In fact, He said that I am the word of God that became flesh. The belief of the believer, number two. The boldness of the believer. I wonder today, how courageous are we? Over and over and over again in the Old Testament, the Word of God admonishes us, instructs us to be courageous. Joshua said it this way, Be strong and of a good courage. Have I not commanded thee, be strong and of a good courage? Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. Our boldness comes from our faith in Christ. Now listen, there's a difference in boldness and arrogance. And the best way I can tell you this is I used to be very arrogant. 
and just my, my beliefs, it, it brought something into me that I thought, I believe what is absolutely right. And I do. But that doesn't make me absolutely right. It just makes what I believe absolutely right. Now, I might have just lost a few of you. But sometimes because what we believe is absolutely right, then we get such a high and mighty feeling and, 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 and sense of who we are that we just believe that we're superior to everybody. So arrogance is never beneficial to anybody. I, 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 look, I'm a, I don't listen to old sermons way back when because, you know, some of the things I've said came across very sharp. And if I would have been a lost person sitting here, I would have felt so hit between the eyes that I'd have probably left and never came back again. But the Bible says that we're to be bold. You see, the disciples struggled with that. The disciples would jump up and chop off a man's ear and Jesus would put it back on. You see, there was a difference in arrogance and boldness. The disciples would look and say, this man is not good enough to, to have a meal with Jesus. That was arrogance. Boldness was the guts to go have a meal with him, right? Arrogance was saying he's too good to sit at a well. Boldness was the courage to go sit at a well. You see, there's a difference. And the more we learn about Christ, we realize there wasn't an arrogant bone in his body, but there's never been a more bold human being on this planet. So the church needs boldness, not arrogance. I, I'm very careful what we put on the church sign because honestly, as I travel, I see things on church signs that are very, very arrogant, you know? And as if, if I was a lost person riding down the road and looked at that sign, I would think, boy, they think they're a lot better than everybody else out here. You know, I love the old cathedral song that simply says, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I'm just a beggar that once upon a time somebody showed me where to get bread. And my responsibility is to take that bread to other beggars. Boldness. Are we bold? Church at Sardis had fallen asleep. I know that we're living in the Laodicean church time, but I see many Sardis churches, churches that are perfectly satisfied just to meet us four and no more. Churches that have lost their boldness. They're no longer a witness in the community. Very good maybe at standing against things, but not very good at standing for things. The most powerful agency or organization on this planet is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. What boldness we must have as believers. Courageous. What's the most courageous thing you could do tomorrow? Not tell a sinner how bad they are, but tell a sinner how good Jesus is and how much He loves them. Number three, you got the belief and the boldness. How about this, the burden, the burden? The church at Ephesus had lost their first love. They were doing everything right, but there was no longer a burden, no longer a heaviness of heart, no longer a passion. Romans chapter 9, the first two verses. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. Paul is saying here, I am absolutely broken over the fact that there are so many lost people that need to hear the gospel. I get to preach a lot of places and I'm grateful for that and 
Sometimes people ask me, why do you, why do you take, I don't, I don't know how to turn down an invitation because I feel like if, if God's opening a door, it, you need to take that opportunity to share the gospel. But the vast majority of churches that I preach in have lost their burden and they don't even they don't even realize that they're supposed to be broken for people out there. That they're supposed to have a heavy heart. If I were to ask you tonight, are you broken for hungry people? You'd say, absolutely. I'm telling you, when you go places, and, and, you, and many of you have had that opportunity, we've gone a lot of places and we feed homeless people and we feed hungry people, and you see them come in and you're feeding them a plate of food and they look at you and, and they say, is there any way I could have another roll? And you break the rules by looking around and you give them another roll. And you see them take that roll and they take it back and maybe they'll take half of the meat that they've got and they put that in their roll and they wrap it up and they put it in their bag so they'll have something for the next meal. And your heart is so broken and you say, I just want to take you home and take you to my house where the cupboards are full and the refrigerator is full and I want to feed you because we're broken. Because they're hungry, physically hungry. If you're out tonight and maybe tomorrow and you're at Walmart and you see a little child and they're, and they're dirty and they have food on their face and their little hair is, is, is in knots because it's not been combed or washed and their clothes are dirty and you can smell them from a foot away and, and you look at them and you see that they're being snatched around and mistreated, you're broken, you're, you're hurting, you're burdened because you see the physical condition of this precious little child and you think, if only I could take you home and wash you and clean you and clothe you and feed you and embrace you and care for you because we're burdened for them. But the fact of the matter is there is a lostness around us of people who aren't necessarily physically dirty or hungry and there's no evidence outwardly that they're in such a mess but they are because they do not know Christ but yet we've lost our burden and our heaviness when we look at them to actually be broken and say I just want to take you and to share the gospel, the good news, the life transforming news of the gospel of Christ. I want to take you to church with me and that you can hear the songs of Zion and the message of the cross. I so desperately want you to be saved. That burden, that brokenness. I wonder sometimes why we've lost that, why I lose that. Maybe it's because it's so uncomfortable and it's so responsible in our, on our part. When we have a burden, there's got to be an action that follows it up or it'll torment, torment us day and night, Right? The Bible says if you see someone in need and you do not anything about it, it's sin. And that doesn't just mean our physical needs. Number four, I know we need to move. I've got quite a bit still to cover. I'll do it quickly. Number four, the benevolence of the believer. Okay, I will. B-E-N-E-V-O-L-E-N-C-E. -E -E. Benevolence. I spelled that right. Good. I'm a pretty good speller. The benevolence of the believer. Now, what does that mean? It means that we give. All right. Again, our time is just about up, but don't, don't cut me short on this. I like this. This is good stuff. I might have to preach this in revival somewhere. Think about this. Two kinds of people in the church. All right? Number one, they're the givers. It's nothing new to you, but think about this. They're the givers. Now, a giver is a person that sees the church and asks the question, what can I give through 
the church. How can I plug in? What can I give through the church? Of myself, what can I give? I'm not just talking about tithes and offerings and financially. But I'm gifted. I've been given a gift that I might use. Isn't it wonderful when you get a gift you can use? I remember we were younger and first married. Every holiday, every Christmas, every birthday, Mother's Day, anniversaries, I always tried to give Tiffany something she could use. There was the vacuum cleaner Christmas. There was the blender birthday. Valentine's Day. I gave her a blender for Valentine's Day with instructions on how to make chocolate milkshakes for me. Think about that. That's a good point. I didn't write that down. I'll be done. Forgot it. Y'all notice when you get older, you forget things, things you think you'd never forget? Thanks. So what... Sometimes, what can I give through the church? Think about this. Now, church, one of our responsibilities is to make sure we've got lots of avenues for people to give. I mean, if you come here and you want to give some money, there is never any shortage of where we can channel your money. Give it to missions, give it to different things, give it to the children's home, we can give it to the association, the convention. We can, you know, put it all kind of places. But how about people's gifts? We want to make sure that we have a good setup here so whatever your gift set is, we can help, you know, channel you in the right direction so that you can use your gifts for the glory of God. I'm giving through the church. Number two, there are also takers. Takers. And the takers are always looking and analyzing and wondering, what can I take from the church? Now, some of this is very evident. There are churches in many communities that have lovely cemeteries. And sometimes people will join the church because when you become a member, you get a free cemetery plot. And that's the gift that keeps on giving. Amen? Y'all are guinea pigs. This is, this is preach, I believe. Sometimes people will join the church because there's a wedding coming up or maybe because, you know, there's something that they want to be involved in. Um, you know, uh, I'm always hesitant when somebody calls the church and says, hey, we've been looking for a church. I've been thinking about visiting yours. We have children. By the way, if you're a member of that church, do you get a discount for the daycare? And you're thinking, hmm... Might be an ulterior motive for joining the church, you know. And that's kind of evident. You say, well, people ought not do that. But here's the fact. Most people in the church today believe that there's an entitlement, that there's something that comes along from simply being a member of the church. Well, I give my tithes. I'm on the roll. Therefore, I am due this many visits, this many calls, this much this, this much this. You don't believe me? How many churches today are, are polling their people and, and surveying their people saying, what do you want out of a pastor? What do you want out of this staff person? What do you want out of the church? Well, we need to be asking the question, what does he want out of the staff, What out of the pastor? What, what does God want? You know, here's the thing. Every person in this room has probably got a different level of expectations. And, and we try our best, but we always fall short. And that's just the way it is. But when we get our minds to, hey, listen, the church is not something that I'm owed anything from. The church is something that I owe everything to. But how about it? Where are we at? Where are we at? 
hey, I'm, I'm, I'm a pastor, and I, I mean, I, I meet with other pastors, and they, well, the, the, they owe me this, and they owe me that. I'm not going to kid you. We've had interviews with people. We've had interviews with people that one of their first questions, a lot of times they want to ask the committee this, but I meet with them in an interview, and they'll say, you know, what day do I get off? Now, hey, there ain't nothing wrong with taking a day off. I mean, but if that's your first motivation, you know, had a friend of mine one time said, I can't wait to get a full-time job so I can take a week off and go play golf. Because he couldn't afford to go play golf, you know. Sometimes we have this idea that, you know, even I'm a pastor, I'm in tight, whatever. And the fact of the matter is, there is no greater agency in the world that we can give, give through, than the church. When we lock arms together, there's nothing that we can't do. Isn't that amazing? Number five, and I'm done. We've looked at the belief, the boldness, the burden, the benevolence, and now finally, the bonding of the believer. The Bible says that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. So much in the Word of God about coming together, about what it is to the edification of the body, the, the building up of the body. Being together, coming to church is like a gymnast exercising or a weightlifter uh, pumping iron, you know. It is what builds us up. How important, listen, there's only two things that's happening in the church these days. There's the building up, and there's the what? And the tearing down. I don't think I've ever seen a time where I knew of more churches being torn apart. And I'm going to tell you, the enemy will attack. He'll look for any little way. Sometimes people say I'm a little bit paranoid or maybe I'm a little bit cynical. But I'm on such guard every day and wondering how is the enemy going to try today to get in? How is the enemy going to try through me or through one of you or, or through one of the, you know, the, the, uh, the ministries of our church? How is he going to try to dig or to, to cut? In fact, the Bible says literally it's like darts he's throwing at us. Do you know that? I take you to some churches he never attacks. He's perfectly happy with the state they're in. He ain't going to do anything to alter their direction because he likes the direction they're going in. But when you're going in the right direction, the enemy will come against you and come against you and come against you. Last thing, the conclusion. Most churches have vision, V-I-S-I-O-N. Most churches have vision. They do. Maybe it's the pastor. Maybe it's you know, a certain group within the church that are really on fire and they've got vision. And, and every church has a different vision. Ultimately, it's aiming at the same end goal. But some churches are strategically placed for certain things, right? But most churches also have division. D-I-V-I-S-I-O-N. Beloved, how heartbreaking to think that there's such a small difference in the words vision and division. Now, every church has a little of both, probably, sometimes more. But here's the deal. The dominant theme always prevails. The dominant theme always prevails. It's kind of like the fellow that had two dogs. After a little while... His neighbor said, what's up with them two dogs of yours? What do you mean, he said. He said, well, one of them's getting all plump and sassy, kind of overweight, belly dragging the ground. The other one's nothing but skin and bones. 
He said, well, it's easy to explain. I'm only feeding one of them. So the question is, what do we feed? The vision or the division? I ain't talking about nobody in particular. I'm not. But I guarantee you, 99.44% of the churches in America, if they were to have a special called meeting on a Wednesday night to discuss the vision, the vision of the church, only a very small handful of people would probably show up. But if most of those churches were to call a special called meeting on a Wednesday night to discuss the division the church would be packed. Isn't that sad? And then we wonder why the church today is that Laodicean church. We'll pray.